you're not up and ready to go now, then nothing I'm going to say is going to help you. So, uh, happy April 15th, tax day. That's what I always think about when I think about April 15th, obviously not today. I did not know, somebody educated me this morning because I didn't really realize why Tuesday was tax day. I always thought it was the day, if it was on a weekend, um, the taxes, our taxes were due the day after uh, the 15th of the closest day, but I guess it's because Patriots Day in Boston. I guess that's a holiday up there, so that's when the, the nuts run the marathon, and I know some of you have, so, um, but uh, yeah, some of you are copping, but so anyway, if you're not ready, you got two days. That's basically the whole point. You got two days left. Every year, I say I'm going to do mine early, and every year I don't. So um, anyway, but, uh, but I like to drag it out because I'm, I believe... Taxes are important, but I'm not giving Uncle Sam anything early. So um, anyway, I better, get, I better move along. Uh, we're going to be this morning in Luke 24, if you're there or if you want to go there in your, in your Bibles or on your iPads or phones, however you want to pull the scripture. Of course, it will be on the, uh, it'll be on the screen in front of you and behind me in just a moment when we do get to that text. I want to start, I, I came across a story of a, a hiring manager at a, at a company that uh, decided to give a job to a, a new immigrant to the United States. G- gave him a job working in the mailroom and um, told him to sort the mail. That was his job. He was going to stand down in the mailroom and as the mail came in, sort it into the mail slots. And, and so the, the manager was kind of observing throughout the day to make sure that everything was, was going okay. And, and he was amazed at what he saw. He'd never seen anybody sort mail as quickly as this, this man did. I mean, just get it in the mail as fast as it hit his hands. And he was, he was super impressed and, and super amazed by it. And at the end of the day, he pulled him aside and said, I, I just want to let you know, I, I'm amazed. I've never hired anyone as good at sorting mail as you are. And he said, oh, thank you so much. He said, imagine how good I'll be after I learn to read English. Now, here's the point. Things are not always as they appear to be. We cannot always believe. We know that we we can't believe everything people tell us. We know that. Life experience tells us that, that the things that sometimes that we hear uh, aren't true, and we have to sometimes have a a healthy level of, of skepticism and discernment. But what we also learn is that sometimes we can't trust even what our eyes see. And some, or sometimes we have a hard time trusting what our eyes see, things that, that just don't fit with, with our expectations or, or life experience. Last summer, Tony and I got away for a week, just the two of us, and uh, we went and stayed at a place on a beach. We, got, we flew down to one of the islands in, in the Caribbean. And um, as we were there, we rented a car so we could get around and do some things and explore a little bit. And we were out one, one afternoon. I, I don't remember exactly where we were going. doesn't really matter. And as I'm driving down the road, I notice a, a woman standing off the side of the road, just out of, you know, just kind of over here and nothing abnormal about that. But, but as I got closer, I, I started to, to go, what's going on? And, and I noticed, or at least I thought I noticed, that she was changing her, her clothes on the side of the road. Now, when I say changing her clothes, I don't mean discreetly. She was going full Monty on the side of the road. 
And, and it was one of those things that I was like, this is what happened. That's not what it seems to be, you know? I, that cannot be what I think I'm seeing. And we drove by it relatively quickly, and I'm still processing. In my mind, I'm thinking, that didn't just happen. That, my eyes are playing tricks on me. That wasn't what was going on. Until Tony looked at me and said, did you just see that? <laughs> and of course I went, saw what? <laughs> I have no idea. I didn't see anything. But the point is, had she not, I probably wouldn't have believed that that's really what had happened. Fortunately, Tony, well, I don't know, fortunately, um, corroborated that what I thought I saw is indeed what I saw. The point is, I, I didn't believe it because it didn't fit with an expectation. That's not something that's, that's well outside the norm. So, so even though my eyes processed it, I didn't necessarily believe it until I had corroborating evidence. There's a lot of ways that we do this, and, and we do this in um, things that don't fit our expectations, things that don't fit our worldview. Uh, I saw, I was, you know, caught a documentary this week that was talking about conspiracy theories and those that believe the, you know, the moon landing was a conspiracy theory and the, that the, you know, the earth is flat and those kind of things, even though we have stories and we have pictures and we have things, you know, if it doesn't fit with a worldview, you can squeeze those things out. To, to make room for things that you don't expect, for things that don't fit with a, a preconceived of idea of, of what you believe, and lastly, even things that seem too good to be true. Even though we see it, if it just seems too good to be true, we have a hard time believing it. And that's where the disciples are this morning. That leads us into our scripture this morning. That is in Luke 24, at the end of the chapter, and I added a few verses on to the text from what uh, is in the bulletin, we have a story about what the disciples see, but then the challenge to believe what they see. And so let's, uh, let's turn to the scripture this morning. In verse 36, again, Gospel of Luke, starting at, in uh, chapter 24. It says, while they were still talking about this, and we'll get back to that, what this refers to, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you so troubled, and why do you doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on, on, on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany... He lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And indeed, brothers and sisters, we pray God's blessing here 
on the reading of his word. Let us, let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word that speaks your truth, that challenges us, that meets us where we are, that, that invites us to be part of your story. In these moments, help us to hear, help us to, to believe, and help us to be called into a deeper relationship with you and one another. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. So last week, we jumped ahead. If you were here in worship with us last week, our scripture came from Acts chapter 4, which was a, a significant number of days after the resurrection of Jesus. This morning, we kind of jumped back into the, into the story that is the immediate experience of the followers of Jesus in the aftermath of his arrest, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so it's helpful to, to, to kind of locate the story into the events that are going on, to understand what's happening in this moment in the lives of the disciples. They have, they have kind of holed up. They've hidden away in, in a room in, in Jerusalem. It's, it's a very unsafe place for them to be as they understand it. They've just seen Jesus arrested and they've seen him crucified. So, so there's fear going on for them because they know as his followers, their fear is they're the next target. So that's what's going on. They're hiding, they're hiding, if you will. And into that, the story of Easter morning begins to unfold. So the, the very first verse of, that I read from verses, while they were still talking about this, well, what's this mean? Well, there's a number of things that had just taken place. One is the women had gone to the tomb that morning. And as we know, or many of us know that story on Easter, they go, the tomb is empty, the stones rolled away, they're encountered by the angel of the Lord who basically asks them, why are you looking for someone who's alive among the dead? So, so that's taken place. They've heard from the angel that Jesus is alive and they've come back to the disciples to report this. Peter has run to the tomb to check it out and has found it empty, just as he said. He hadn't had an experience yet, but he sees it empty. So he's come back and given his report. And then into this, Cleopas... And the other disciple, the unnamed disciple, come into the room. They had left the city. They'd gotten out of Dodge, if you will. They'd been on their way to Emmaus. And they encounter, if you remember the story, the stranger on the road who begins to talk with them. And they invite him to stay for the meal, to stay for the night. And when they do, he takes bread and breaks it. He takes the cup and blesses it. And immediately they recognize Jesus. So they've had an encounter with the resurrected Christ there They've hightailed it back into the city. So all of this is happening. So you've got to imagine the disciples who loved Jesus, who had given their life to following Jesus, who had been through this traumatic experience, they're trying to process all of this. They're trying to make sense of these reports, and, and are, so clearly they're having a hard time believing any of it, as I think we all would. And it's into this moment that the Scriptures say Jesus appeared. The resurrected body of Jesus He's there. And his first words are peace. His first words are breathe deep. That's what I really think the injury. Take a deep breath. Because I have to think, whether it's an external or an internal, the disciples are kind of freaking out in this moment. That, that, that just overwhelmed by, by this experience and trying to process it that they're trying to process it because this is a moment, I think, that was beyond their hope. 
This is something that was probably too good. They wouldn't even have known to ask for it, to hope for it, to pray for it. Even though, yes, we look back and we go, well, didn't Jesus say that this was going to happen? Yes, he did. Didn't he predict all these things were going to happen? Yes, he did. But they didn't get it any more than we would have gotten it. You know, and, and so it didn't compute because it doesn't. We don't expect this. We've talked about that. I don't need to go into detail there. We don't expect this kind of a thing. They didn't expect this kind of a thing. Because it's more than they can comprehend. It's more than they can believe. There are, there are times in our lives when experiences happen that become hard for us to comprehend. We understand this happens when we go through tough times. There's, uh, there, when, when bad things happen, those can be moments that are incredibly difficult for us to process. That, that makes sense. But, but, the, but, the, but the opposite is true. Sometimes when things happen that are so good, we, we have a hard time processing. We have sometimes, some of us have a hard time thinking that we would deserve something this positive to happen in our lives. I wonder if maybe that's what's going on. Disciples can't imagine that, that they deserve anything this good to happen in their lives. Now, we do this in less, less, less significant or impactful ways, or at least I do. I don't know about you, but I've gotten things over the years been that, that have been really good, that have happened to me, that I, I kind of wait for the, the shoe to drop. You know, you get the good news and you're like, this can't be what it seems to be. My life is, shouldn't be this good. Um, I, you know, in silly ways. A number of years ago, I remember uh, applying for a ministry program that, that I didn't expect to get in. I didn't expect... Um, to be considered for, but I did anyway. I mean, I applied, and I was going somewhere. I think I was going up to some Sun City for something, and I grabbed the mail. A lot of times when I drive out of, away from the parsonage, I can just grab the mail um, through, the, through the window. So I grabbed the mail and I put it on the front seat. I got to wherever I was going. I was there a little bit early, so I was in the parking lot. So I just started going through the mail, and I opened up this letter, and it was an acceptance letter into this program. And I was super excited, but I can remember reading it 12 times, wondering where I was missing the line that said, congratulations, you're a great guy, but sorry. You know, because that's what I expected to have happened. So when good news came, I had to read it repeatedly to, to process and to believe that it was actually real. Now, that's insignificant compared to what the disciples are experiencing. I'm in no way connecting those two on level of importance but the reality is we can identify at least some of us can I can identify with something being so good they can't believe that it's happening and the, the line that I find so fascinating is verse 41 that drives us home it says while they still did not believe it Jesus is in front of them while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement you hear that? They didn't believe it because of joy and amazement. It was too good to be true. So Jesus has a meal. He says, let me have something to eat. And part of that eating is to reiterate, this is real. The, the, the food on the plate is disappearing. I'm taking it in. This is happening. And so they have to come to terms with the fact that everything that they thought they knew has now just been turned upside down. That's what the resurrection of Jesus does. It reorients our lives. It changes the way that we see things. It is news so good that it can't not, if we believe it, if we receive it, it can't not change the way that we experience life and understand life. And that is exactly what happens to the disciples. That's exactly what happens to each of us when we come into a relationship with Christ, when we, too, come to the realization and the acceptance that he who was crucified, dead, and buried has come again, has risen again. And so in this moment, there are two that I identified, that I pull two significant things that happen in the life of the disciples 
recognitions, and and life-changing events that also impact us. And the first is this. They realize, they realize that they are forever with Jesus. They realize that they are forever with Jesus. What, what I mean is, I, I heard somebody say it like this, that, that we are a companioned people. We are a companioned people. And what I mean by that is, is this. They, at that moment, thought the story was over. They had spent however many years they had been with Jesus, depending on when they'd come and started following him. They'd been, they'd been with him every day. They'd, they'd broken bread with him every day. They'd listened to his voice every day. It was a relationship. And the moment of his death, as they understood it, that relationship was over. Jesus was gone. But they realize in this moment of resurrection that death doesn't get that final say. This is what we talk about in our faith. Death doesn't get that final say. And we can celebrate those promises of life that Jesus gives in, in John 14 and John 3.16 and in other places in the scripture in, in, um, uh, in Corinthians that talk about the immortality and the promise of life. We celebrate that, but, but it goes even deeper than that because in that moment, they recognized that their loneliness evaporated in light of the eternal promise that Jesus would be with them. Jesus becomes the embodiment of the promise that, that God spoke in Deuteronomy 31 when he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus becomes the embodiment. I think what had happened with, in those days between arrest and, and crucifixion and, and resurrection, there had to be the most lonely time of the disciples life and it's interesting because they were together they were in that upper room they were together they weren't isolated but I believe they're incredibly lonely and I, I think most of us know what it's like to be with people and feel loneliness you know the presence of other people doesn't necessarily negate negate the reality that we sometimes feel extreme and powerful loneliness and I feel that the disciples were feeling that because their friend and their teacher and their master was gone and they felt they'd never see him again And in that moment, they realize that that there's a difference between solitude and loneliness. Loneliness evaporates. They may have moments of solitude, of being alone, of self-reflection, but never again would they be alone. Never again would they be outside the presence of Jesus. And they would learn this as it comes, even after his ascension at the end of Luke here. and, And as we read in the Gospels, they recognize that now... Jesus has overcome death. That separation, that divide is gone. They are forever in a relationship with him. And he is forever in a relationship with us. That's the promise of faith. That's what we cling to when we come to faith in Christ. It's his recognition. No matter what our experiences, no matter what our sins, our failures, our shortcomings, that we're never separated from the love of God. We're never separated from the presence of Christ. And so our faith is built upon the relationship Jesus invites us into. I've heard people talk before about a, a, a practice of prayer where they, they sit next to an open chair. I don't know if you've heard this before, but they sit next to an open chair, and the invitation of prayer is to imagine Jesus sitting in the chair next to you and have a conversation. Have a conversation with Christ. My mom taught me that was what prayer was. It's a conversation with Jesus. We didn't use the empty chair, but she taught me early on, imagine Jesus with you. I used to, we used to vacation, I've talked about before, in the mountains of North Carolina, and I would go down to the creek, Cattail Creek, and that was a place of solitude for me. And I would pray sometimes down there at the creek. It was one of my favorite places in the world to be. And that's what I would imagine. I'd imagine, I'd sit on a rock, and I'd imagine Jesus sitting on a rock next to me, and we'd have a conversation. 
That's, that's what prayer looks like because Jesus is with us. It's not a fictitious, imaginary thing. Jesus is with us. I loved your prayer this morning, Brad. I thought about it as you were praying. Brad, who stepped up and prayed. And if you guys don't know Brad, man, you've got to get to know Brad. He's awesome. And I'm not trying to just pat you on the back, but it sounded like a conversation. It was just Brad and God were talking, and we were invited into it. And that was really cool really cool and really wonderful to see the different ways that we pray. I mean, you guys hear me or John so much, but prayer, there's, there's, it doesn't have to be formulaic. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't even have to be um, pretty, you know? It, it can be, I always, I've, I've talked before, Max Licato uses the example of some people pray like a, you know, a, a jet and some people pray like a crop duster, you know? And they're both prayers. I love that. And it's powerful because it's personal and it's real. That's what the disciples realize in that moment. It's, it's to, to, to be companioned, to recognize that in this journey, they would never again feel that loneliness of being isolated from Jesus, that he would always be with them. And that's a powerful truth and something that would reshape their reality. But then here's the second thing. The, the first word is companioned. Here's the second, led. They would continue to be led by Christ. See, I, I think the other thing that was happening in that upper room was they were trying to figure out where their life was going. They'd spent these years with Jesus, and he had directed their path. That was the invitation, follow me, and that's what they had done. Now he was dead. And, and I think there probably was two focuses of their lives. One, how do we get out of Jerusalem? Because it's not a safe place to be for us right now. And two, what are we going back to? What life are we going back to? Maybe even thinking about going back to the life that they'd once knew because the one who had led them was no longer there. But in, a, in conjunction with recognizing that their companion is the recognition that forever their life is going to be led by Jesus and that it, it redirected, I think, the trajectory of their life. It redirected them back onto that path of discipleship. There are moments in our lives, and I think it was a powerful singular moment, but there are moments in our lives when our path gets redirected. Our, our, our road begins to go in ways that we hadn't necessarily planned or expected previously. And sometimes those moments are very crystal clear. Sometimes they're very gradual. But there are moments you may have in your life when you know in a moment something changed and the direction of your life was, was reoriented, if you will. One of my experiences is the, uh, the home that Tony and I first lived in when we got married. Uh, when we got married, I was working as the youth director at First United Methodist Church of Haines City. And as part of that job, I got a house to live in. It was the old parsonage. And when I say old, I mean old. It was one of those houses where you could stomp the floor and the whole thing would shake. The, and, and you had... But, but here was the thing. For... Young kids is what we were, uh, just starting out. It was great because it was our place. I mean, it had a roof that worked, you know. It had running water and hot water most of the time, a uh, few lights to turn on. I mean, it was, it was, it was what we needed. It was what we needed. And, um, and so as we were living there, we, had, we were making plans to, for me to go to seminary. And we had done our visit. I was going to Georgia. I was going to, in fact, one of the reasons I, I proposed to Tony, I've told you some of you the story before, uh, in Georgia on top of Stone Mountain. And part of the reason is because I thought we'd be living in Georgia. And I thought it would be a wonderful kind of full circle story. And so that's where we were going. 
And um, some things didn't quite work out as well as I'd hoped. It wasn't terrible. It just wasn't quite as good as I'd hoped. And, and I had applied to a secondary school because, you know, that was always good to have a backup plan. And so I'd applied to Duke. And, and I can never, I, I'll never forget, I was standing in the living room and we had a mail, you know, we had the mail slot that was right there at the door. And so the mailman had come up and, and I must have heard him. I don't know whatever, however it worked out, but I happened to get the mail directly from him that day. And... Um, I started going through it, and there was a letter from Duke, and it was an acceptance letter, but with that acceptance letter was a, a scholarship offer that was really good. And I can remember in that moment thinking, things just changed. Things just changed. The, the path is, you know, I just felt a moment of, of God just saying, you need to think in a new direction. And so we visited. We didn't make the, moment, the decision on the spot, but, but most of you know that's where the story went. We went from, from Georgia to North Carolina, and I've never doubted that decision for a moment. But, but my point is it was, it, was a, it was a singular experience in which I felt the trajectory of life changing. In far more significant ways, that's exactly what happens the moment Jesus shows up. The moment Jesus comes into their presence and they recognize that not only is he alive that not only is he going to be with them now and forever he says I'm sending the advocate in John 14 that will come to you and he references that here but but they also recognize their path will forever be different than what they had begun to think it was going to be it's kind of back on track for what they might have expected before the crucifixion of Jesus, that Jesus would continue to lead them, that Jesus would continue to be the one who would call them forth. I mean, that's the invitation, come and follow me. That's our invitation. It is always to follow Jesus. And we have to be very aware of that. And I will tell you, as, as a pastor, I have to be very alert and, and attentive because there's an easy trap to fall into sometimes uh, as, as uh, the church is an organization of people. We will very often, as leaders, we'll start reading from business leaders, and we'll read from those who are in public relations, and we'll read, get advice from those who are in marketing, and we should, and we should. We should learn from those who are in those kind of practices. But, but there's a danger here in the falling into the trap, because I have to always remember that we are never called to market Jesus. We are called to follow Jesus, and that is very, very different. Our call is not to market him. Our call is to follow him, and through the testimony of our lives, our actions, and our words, we share Jesus. But it's, it's not a strategy. It's not a, it's not a product. It's a life that we're called into. And that's what Jesus invites his disciples into. That's what he invites us into, into a life that becomes marked by the, the way of Jesus, which is a connection. It's a connection to God through the, the, through the uh, power of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a connection to others in community. And then it's a willingness to open that community and say all are welcome in. That there is no fence here. That, that regardless of your, your choices in the past, regardless of, of the decisions you've made, regardless of the language you speak or the color of your skin or the style of your clothes, whatever it is, you're welcome. Because that's what Jesus did. He invited prostitutes. He invited tax collectors. In fact, he got a bad reputation for hanging out with the wrong people. Heaven forbid when his church doesn't have that same reputation. Because we're called to the lifestyle. We're called to a way of life. 
And that's what they recognize. Jesus is going to continue to lead them. And I love that that verse goes into verse 50, which I added on. It says, when he led them out of the vicinity of Bethlehem. I love that image. When he led them out, the shepherd continuing to lead his flock. And that has happened for 2,000 years since. When we encounter Christ, the news that seems too good to be true, these things begin to happen in our lives. We recognize he is present with us always. Always. Whether we've lived 80 years or, or eight, Christ is there and will be part of the journey forever. But then he continues to lead us. He continues to lead us and ask us and give us that same invitation to come and to follow me. And our challenge, our call is to follow and to be a part of a community of people that are connected to God, connected to each other, and live out the compassion of Christ. That becomes the testimony. That becomes our, our proclamation. The things we say, the lives that we lead. That's what I believe changed or crystallized in a moment for these disciples. They'd still have to understand it. We still have to learn to understand it. But Christ's promise, I'm with you and I lead you. You are companioned and you are led. That's who we are. That's the news that's too good to be true. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we embrace it. I pray that we receive it. I pray that it becomes a very part of who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your promise. Thank you for your invitation. Thank you for the, the news that is too good to be true, the promise of resurrection. That means that you have overcome death, that you are with us now and forever, and that we live into that relationship with you and we follow the call of, of your voice, the call of, of your spirit. So Lord, help us to live into that obediently and to let our lives be our testimony. We pray in the way of Christ. Amen. Amen.